Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading at verse 26 and read through 1611. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Well, I had planned on moving on to the grace of hope this morning, but upon further thought, uh, I've decided to spend one more week on love. Uh, We started our study with God's love, and then we moved to man's love, which is to be patterned after God's love. And this love of ours flows in two directions. It flows Godward. We are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it flows manward, for we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And most of our study on love, manward, as we've been on it for three weeks or so, has focused upon our love for each other as disciples of Jesus Christ in the family of God. As Christ's new command to his disciples is that that you must love one another as I have loved you. And so I've not said much about our love for those outside the family of God. But now I'd like to do so before leaving this all-important grace of love. Our duty of love is especially pointed toward our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ But they're not the only ones to receive Christ-like love from us. There are also those who are lost. And yes, even those who are regarded enemies of us. Love's the great giver. And it, it gives and delights to pour itself out on all people, not just fellow saints. Just like the sun, it, it, it pours out its warmth and its light On all people. So God himself pours out his gifts of love. Not just on the righteous but on the wicked as well. So let's consider today our love for the lost. Our love for the lost. And by lost I just mean those that have not yet been saved. Uh, They're not yet reconciled to God through faith and repentance. uh, In Jesus Christ. Uh, They're still in their sins. And therefore still under the curse and wrath of God, the punishment for sin, such that if they died this moment, they would be in an eternal hell. Now, those are the lost, and we're speaking of our love for the lost. We've seen that love by its very definition delights in the good of the loved one. Wherever you're considering love, whether it's God's or yours, It delights in the good of the loved ones. So what is the good? What is the good that we want to see lost people enjoying? Well, we can learn from our Lord's own ministry to the lost, can't we? When he saw lost people hungry, he fed them. He fed the multitudes, saved and lost alike. 
when he saw the lost sick and diseased, he healed them. He never turned anyone away. When he saw them troubled, he sought to comfort them. And as our great example of love, so our love for the lost must include their material and temporal needs. Jesus' own parable of the Good Samaritan shows us that. What does it look like to be neighbor and to love a neighbor as we love ourselves? The Samaritan found this man robbed and beaten and left half dead along the road. Others had seen him there but walked around on the other side, failing to love him. But the Samaritan moved toward him and went to him and did all that he could to meet his material needs. And at great sacrifice to himself in terms of time and money, he went out of his way. He, he was spending and being spent for him to see him restored to health. But a man can be clothed and fed and educated and working all of his 80 years of life and then die and go to an eternity in hell. So our Savior's love for the lost went far beyond just his material and temporal needs. And so must ours. He not only fed and clothed them, but he preached the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to them. He saw the crowd not only as hungry, but as harassed and helpless. A sheep without a shepherd. And so as the good shepherd, he went to them and he invited them, come to me and find rest, real rest for your soul. Once after an especially full day packed with preaching and healing, our Lord was up early the next morning to pray to his heavenly father. And when the disciples found him, they said, Lord, everybody's looking for you as if, come on, let's go have some more ministry to them. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also, for that is why I have come. Men need more than food and healing of the body. They need the words of eternal life. They need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves them. And so love seeks to meet that greatest need of salvation from sin and hell. Love delights in their highest good to see them reconciled to God, enjoying fellowship with God as they were meant to do. Indeed, that abundant and eternal life that starts now and lasts forever in a new world that's perfect, that is to come. So that means we love the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means witnessing is love to our neighbor. That means that evangelism and mission is loving the lost. And that is part of our continuing debt of love. As the Apostle Paul says, I'm debtor to all men, to the Jew and to the Greek. Why, Paul? Why are you debtor to them? Because I have the saving gospel of Christ and they don't. Yes, love seeks the good of the loved one. Didn't someone love you enough to bring the gospel to you? I know they did. You, you wouldn't be here as a saved person if that weren't true. Someone loved you enough to bring the gospel to you. Probably more than once. Probably more than one person. What love to want you to enjoy the very best, the very highest blessing of all. Fellowship with the living God. Right with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are, we're, we're back again in John 13 to 17. Jesus with his uh, disciples in the upper room on the night of his betrayal. And he's preparing his disciples for his departure. These, in these last words of Jesus before his crucifixion, we have seen that, that love is the predominant note. But what I want us to see this morning is that right alongside of love, their mission Their witness to the lost world is never far from Jesus' heart and mind, and indeed from his lips, as he instructed them that night. Love is so important to the mission that Jesus not only spoke about love, 
But he spoke about the witnessing mission as well. In fact, Jesus says that it's by loving one another as he loved us that all men, including lost people, will know that we are disciples of Jesus. His love commends the gospel. His love in his people commends the gospel to lost people as something supernatural, something compellingly real. Nowhere else do we find such love as this. And so love adorns the gospel. It makes it attractive. Love dresses up the gospel in beautiful garb and and recommends the gospel to a people hating and being hated. Love spreads everywhere the sweet aroma of Christ. So critical to the mission. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.27 says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whatever happens, that's, I love those words because it, it includes whatever happens. And that's where we live. And he says, whatever happens, live in a way that speaks well of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the gospel claims to teach people to love one another as God has loved them. So whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner of love Undeserved, self-sacrificing, unending love. The gospel claims to reconcile people to God and to one another. So whatever happens, conduct yourself in a way that proves the gospel's power to reconcile contrary parties. The gospel claims to make law keepers out of lawbreakers. So conduct yourselves, whatever happens, in such a way that proves that gospel plain. Claim, keep God's laws of love. No wonder Jesus is emphasizing the importance of love as he prepares to leave them. Their mission cannot succeed without love, either for one another or for the world. And so when Jesus comes to pray at the end of this evening in John chapter 17, we see this same concern for their mission to the lost world and the place of their loving unity in that mission, the two are intertwined. He says, Father, I've given them your your word and the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. And my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And we say, what? Why, why would Jesus send his, his disciples into a world of danger where, where they're easily allured and tempted away from Christ and where they're persecuted by the world? Well, the answer is because that world is made up of lost people going to hell that need to see and hear of the love of Christ and be saved. And so I'm not taking them out of the world, but sending them into that world. And I'm praying, Lord, that they would have such a loving unity among themselves that would be observable so that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. And may they be so one in us that the world may believe that you've sent me. And Father, I'm going to keep showing them and revealing You to them so that the love you have for me may be in them. You see, the mission is never far out of sight with this teaching on love and unity, because that's what's needed in proclaiming the gospel to the world. That's what makes a supernatural love in believers so critical. It adorns the gospel that they witness to the world about. Now, after the resurrection and just before Jesus ascended into heaven, Jesus will give his disciples that mission, that great commission that we we often refer to it as. And he'll tell them to go into all the world and make disciples. Um, That's coming after his resurrection. you, he'll say in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses Here in Jerusalem, Samaria, all Judea to the ends of the earth. But here in the upper room, we have the preview 
of the Great Commission. And he not only sets before the disciples their mission to be his witnesses, but he also promises the help and power of the Holy Spirit in that mission, just as he does in Acts 1.8. And in all of this, we're being told how to love the lost. Remember, all commands have to do with loving God and, or else loving man. And that goes for the Great Commission command. To take the gospel to the lost world is a command of love. And what encouragements and instructions there are for us here to do just that. So that's what we're on this morning. Uh, John 15, 26 and 27. Jesus says to them, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify because you've been with me from the beginning. So the disciples must testify about Christ. That's the the commission. That's the mission. But the world doesn't want their testimony about Jesus. You know that. You've experienced that. Someone just told me last week that before he was saved, every time somebody mentioned the name Jesus, the hair on the back of his head would stand up. So full of animosity against Christ. His laws, his gospel, you see. So the world's not dying to hear about our Jesus. And even some places in the world, they'll kill you for witnessing about him. But what an encouragement there is here that that as we testify about Jesus, there's someone else testifying about him. It's the counselor, Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth. He will testify about me. Well, how does he testify about Christ? It's not in a vacuum. It's not separate from our testifying. No, it's it's as we testify about Christ, there is this inner testifier in the hearts of sinners. Listen to this man. Listen to this woman. She's telling you the truth about Jesus. The Spirit testifying along with the disciples' testimony. Making our words come in more than just words, but in power in the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. People will not be saved by merely seeing us love one another or by us loving them. The gospel is not see how we love one another. No, the gospel is see how God in Jesus Christ has loved poor sinners like you and me. Now, seeing our love for one another and seeing and experiencing our love for them may win a hearing for the gospel. It may be the soapbox on which we can present the gospel and they'll say, this is something worth listening to because their lives are demonstrating something that I rarely see. So love and unity in the body of Christ may commend the gospel, but they do not replace the gospel. The gospel is a message to be conveyed in words, a message about Jesus Christ. And so it must come in words, but it must come in more than words or else it just goes in and it comes out. And that's why the spirit of God is coming. To be that other testifier in the heart. To convict and to convert sinners. A supernatural power. So in chapter 16, Jesus says, I told you I'm going away and you're sad. You ought to be glad. You ought to be glad. Why? Because I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Because unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And notice the encouragement of what he will do when he comes. Even as we are testifying about Jesus to the world, verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. But without the Spirit's testimony, this lost world does not really know the truth about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. So how will the Holy Spirit do this? It says, we witness about Christ, as we talk about man's sin, about Christ's righteousness, about God's judgment, he'll be the inside witness. And that's how we love lost people. 
Now, let's not miss these three aspects of our witness. We want to look at each one. If the Spirit is sent to do, uh, to, to bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, then surely we need to be talking about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we'll look at each one. First of all, sin. John 16, 9. He will convict the world in regard to sin because men do not believe in me. So again, I say, if the Holy Spirit has been sent to convict the world about sin, well, then we must be talking to people about their sin. Oh, now here we have a problem. Because people don't like to hear about sin. And I don't want to be negative. I just want to love them. I just want to tell them about God's love. Suppose your well is polluted with cancer-producing chemicals known to have killed people. And I know it, but you don't. And I don't want to talk to you about it. Because you know. Uh, People just don't like to hear about polluted water supply. It, It could upset them. It could ruin their day, maybe even their week. And once they knew about it, well, they'd have to do something about it. And that could get very costly. And I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. I just want to love them. So I keep silent. Now, you see right through that. You say, John, if you really love them, you would tell them. Because love seeks the good, the best of the loved one. And you got me there. You're right. I've got to tell my neighbor his water supply is polluted with dangerous chemicals. I can't say, well, what he doesn't know won't hurt him. No, no, what he doesn't know might kill him. And if we're talking spirit in the spiritual realm, and they don't really understand their problem of sin, what they don't know might damn them, and surely will damn them, unless they know about it. So, people have some sense that something's wrong. It's like a car that was meant to, to, to ride on, on four wheels and one of them's missing. Something's wobbly here. Something's wrong here. But, but people might not know what it is that's wrong. We were made to live with God and in fellowship with God. Never meant to live for a second outside of fellowship with Jesus Christ and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But sin has separated us from him. And, and something's not right. Something's not right in my life. And, and so people can know something's wrong, but not know that it's their sin. That, that their greatest problem in life is sin. That it's their sin that separates them from God. It's their sin that brings the punishment of death. It's their sin that will bring the even greater second death of hell. Into their everlasting experience. So the most loving thing to do. Is to tell them about their sin. And it's cure. The most loving thing to do. Is to say what God's prophet Hosea. Said in Hosea 14. Verse 1. Return O Israel. To the Lord your God. Your sins. Have been your downfall. Why is all this. Why is, why is everything out of kelter. And out of. Your sins have been your downfall. I dare say that most people in the world today don't know that their sins have been their downfall. And it would be hatred for us to know it and not tell them. We must, if we love the lost, tell them your sins have been your downfall. Sin is the problem of every lost person. It's the greatest problem. Now, now, sin's not a popular topic. It never has been, never will be. And conviction of sin is not a fun feeling. It never has been, it never will be. But talking about sin is absolutely essential in loving the lost. They need to know they're lost before they can be saved. And if they do not hear the bad news, they'll have little interest in the good news. Now, we're told... That over a million people have died from COVID-19 this year. And let's say that I have a cure. No bad side effects, no gimmicks, 
a real cure. And I've had it for a year. Yeah, I had it last October. And I could have taken out all kinds of advertisements all over the world and sold it for a reasonable price. $50 for a whole series of treatment that will knock out the coronavirus, the the COVID-19. How many would have been interested in my cure and bought it? Well, probably few, if any, at all. And why is that? Because last October, nobody had the coronavirus. Nobody had COVID-19. They didn't need it. And oh, what a difference a year makes. My, my cure was met with yawns of indifference, but not today. Why? What's, what's different? Same, same drug, same ads, but now everyone's clamoring for it. Why? Because we're told that millions and millions and millions of people today have COVID-19. And so they need it. Without the bad news, there's no good news. And so people must know of their sin problem if the cure of Jesus is to bring anything more than a yawn and a nod of the head. That's precisely what the Holy Spirit has come to do, to convince people of their need of Jesus by convicting them of their sin, their great problem. And so that being the case, that sin is what sends people to hell, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. To skirt around the issue of sin is not love at all, but hatred. And so we do it. We do it humbly. We do it respectfully. We do it lovingly. But we must talk about sin. And nothing more clearly reveals the world's sin than not believing in Jesus. That's what he says in verse 9. That the Spirit will convict them of sin because men do not believe in me. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. You're not fit for God. You're not fit for heaven. You're defiled. You're unclean. You can't go to heaven. You can't get to the Father unless you come through me and what I've done to cure the sin problem. People don't believe that. They didn't believe that. He said, whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. But if you don't believe in me, you will perish. And unless you repent, you will all perish. And that got him crucified. They didn't believe on it. He came to his own and his own received him not. They refused to believe. They refused to come to him that they might have eternal life. And if you haven't trusted in Christ to save you from your sin, you too still have not believed. And that is the greatest demonstration of your sin. Do you mean that God the Father, out of love, gave up his own son and sent him and delivered him up to the cross where he crushed him with his own wrath that sinners might be forgiven? you haven't received him do you mean the son of God became man and went to the cross and there received the punishment our sins should have deserved should have received and would have received and and you say no thank you no thanks it's not a small sin to not believe savingly to not receive this savior come from heaven And that's what the Holy Spirit will come and convict people of. He will convict that you've been just happy to live without this Jesus. You've been content to live without him, without receiving him. What a sin. And the Spirit of God will show your guiltiness of sin because you've not yet believed on him. Well, there's no salvation without a conviction of sin, an awareness of why you need Jesus And that's why the Spirit has come. So we need to talk about sin so that the Spirit might convict of sin. Uh, Secondly, the Spirit will come, Jesus says, to convict the world of in regard to righteousness. Because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. 
Now the world had the righteousness visit them in the person of Jesus Christ. But they didn't believe in Jesus' righteousness. No, they accused him of being unrighteous. They accused him of being a lawbreaker, a troublemaker, stirring up problems, breaking God's commands. They said he was in league with Beelzebub, the the chief demon. He's serving Satan. They accused him of being a blasphemer because he claimed to be God, a liar, a deceiver of the people, a guilty sinner. Do you know what he deserves? Bang, bang, bang. The cross. That's the world's estimate of Jesus. Not righteous. Wicked. Criminal. Getting what he deserved. Well, they were never more wrong, were they? He was the righteous one. He was the holy, blameless, and pure one. And Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convince the world of their guilt in regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father. The Spirit will show the world they got it wrong. The Spirit will show the world he's no sinner, but he is indeed the righteous one. And how does this come about? Well, the world thought, the world showed what they thought of Jesus by nailing him to the cross, and then God showed what he thought of Jesus by raising him from the dead and by receiving him into heaven and putting him at his own right hand upon the throne that rules the universe. The world said, wicked. God said, righteous son, deserving of the worship of the nations, of every heart. And the Holy Spirit was sent to convince the world that they've misjudged him. They've thought less of him than what he really was in a big way, that he is the righteous one. The righteous one. That there's none righteous but him. And he's still convincing people of Jesus' righteousness. He's bringing people up short. They think Jesus is, is not worthy of their lives. They think he's, he's a good teacher, perhaps, but he's not God. I don't need him, so I'm not interested in him. They, they undervalue Jesus. They think less of him than what they ought And the spirit comes and says, oh, you're so wrong. There's he is the only one righteous and he was tempted in every way like we are. And yet he was without sin. And therefore, he's qualified to be the substitute on the altar of Calvary for other sinners. You see, if he had one sin, if it's true that he's not the righteous one and if he just sinned once in in thought, word or deed, well, then he's disqualified For saving us. His death has no merit for us. He's dying for his own sin. He's paying for his own sin problem. And has nothing left over for my sin problem. Oh, but if he's the righteous one. If he's the spotless, without defect Lamb of God. Then his blood can purify an innumerable people who trust in him. He's the righteous one. He has the righteousness that you need in order to get into heaven. A perfect righteousness. And the Spirit comes and convinces the world of that. That you need to be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of your own that that comes from keeping the law. Your best efforts at law keeping. But a righteousness that comes from God. Jesus came from God. And a righteousness that becomes ours through faith. In Jesus Christ, not by our works of righteousness. That's what the Spirit convinces people of. And so they're an awareness of their sin. Oh, I've got this sin problem. Is then followed up with an awareness that Jesus is the righteous one. And therefore his death has infinite merit to save any sinner who comes and trusts in the Savior. This is the work of the Holy Spirit and all to encourage us, you see, in our mission. And so if the spirits come to bear witness and convict of Christ's righteousness, then surely if we love sinners, we'll be telling them about true righteousness that's to be found in Christ. And then lastly, judgment. He, he, he's, he's convincing the world of their guilt uh, in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Verse 11. How is it that you you know there's a day of judgment coming? How do you 
know that. That one day there's a day of reckoning when, when you alone must stand before your maker and be judged. Well, you know it because God told you. You know it because he loved you enough to tell you about it. You know, God could have kept it secret. God could have just not said anything about what happens after death. And and then we die in the next moment. We, We wake up to reality. There is a day of reckoning. Oh. Oh. I'm completely unprepared. That's why he told you ahead of time. While there's still time to prepare. While there's still time to repent and trust in the only Savior of sinners. Isn't it love? To have told you about the coming judgment? And dear Christian, as hard as it might be to talk about a coming judgment, we too need to see that if we love the lost, we'll talk about judgment day. Teacher's in her English class and she's teaching English and students are messing around, throwing paper wads at each other. They're not coming to class prepared. They're not reading their assignments, doing their homework. No, not at all. And then one day, the teacher says at the beginning of class, get out a piece of blank, a blank piece of paper and a pencil. We are having an unannounced test. And your whole grade for the year will hang on what you do with this test. And immediately the protests come. Well, well you never told us. Oh, I would have studied. I would have prepared if I'd have known there was going to be a test. Well, do you see, God could have done that to us. But he didn't. Because he loved us so much that he didn't want us showing up unprepared. He wanted us coming in Christ, his son, where there's no condemnation. And so he told us ahead of time, prepare for the coming day of judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. Be sure you don't come with any sin unpunished. Be sure it's already been punished or God will have to punish you for it. Well, there's only one place, you see, to have sins punished outside of hell. And that's outside the hill of Jerusalem on Calvary. The middle cross where God judged his own son and punished him. And, and the proof that the Holy Spirit will point to that there's coming a day of judgment for the world is that there Jesus judged both the world and the prince of the world. You see what, what he says here in verse 11 that the Spirit will convince the world of their guilt in terms of the the judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Well, who's the prince of this world? It's Satan, isn't it? And there was a prophecy clear back in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent even while the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's seed. And now he's here. And in John chapter 12 and verse 30, just before Calvary, Jesus says, now is the time for judgment. Judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Jesus is referring to his own death on the cross. And there on the cross, Satan was judged. He was crushed. He was defeated. He was disarmed. He was made a public spectacle of. So if Satan, the prince of this world, is condemned, then all of you who are following are also condemned. If he doesn't escape, all of you who are still following Satan's lies, you too will be condemned. And that's what the Spirit will convict people of. There's no way that you're not going to be judged by this God. He's judged your champion, your master. And because you're following him, he'll judge you. So, Loving the lost means telling them the truth about their sin, about Christ's righteousness, about God's judgment. Now, that's not easy. But who said anything about easy? It wasn't easy for Jesus to love sinners. And sometimes love is not easy. Sometimes it takes supernatural spiritual energy to love. We've been seeing that. And that's why we refer to the grace of love. Because God 
Almighty God enables us to love like he loves. That's supernatural. That's nothing easy. That's a a God-sized problem and a God-sized solution. But he sent his own Holy Spirit to be on our side, convincing the lost of these things as we speak of sin and righteousness and judgment. And can make your words ring true in the hearts and minds of the lost. So let's love them with the gospel. Let's tell them the problem. Let's tell them of the cure. That their sins separate them from God and makes them deserving of God's judgment. But because Jesus is the righteous, sinless one and qualified to be their substitute. And because God so loved this world that he gave his son. That whoever does believe upon him savingly will not perish but have everlasting life. He bears God's judgment upon sin for all who are his people. Come to him. And believe on him, receive him. Have you? Have you repented of your sin? Repudiated that life of going the way with your back to him? And come and trusted in him to save you by his blood and righteousness? That's the the message of the gospel. Now, this promise of the coming spirit to convince the world of its guilt in these three ways was soon proven, just some 50 days later, when Peter's in the same Jerusalem where they killed Jesus, and he he stands up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches Christ. And he preaches about his righteousness. And he preaches about their sin. You killed the righteous one. You killed the prince of life. But God raised him from the dead. God had a different view of him than you. And now he's on the throne. The throne of judgment. And you know what happened as Peter was preaching? The Spirit of God was also preaching. In the hearts of people. And the Bible says they were cut in their hearts. Now no preacher's words can cut hearts. They can reverberate in the ears and that's all we can do. But the Spirit of God can cut the heart, pierce the heart. And that's what happened as Peter preached to the ears. The Spirit of God was preaching to the heart. And they cried, brothers, what should we do? We're undone. We've sinned against the righteous. We've murdered the righteous one. We stand under his condemnation. What should we do? And Peter says, repent and believe every one of you for the forgiveness of sins. And 3,000 people did just that. They fled to Jesus. They trusted in him. They turned. They repented of all their past thoughts of Jesus, their past deeds. And they turned and they received him as their Savior and Lord. And they were saved and added to that little band there in Jerusalem. Just as Jesus said, you will testify and the Spirit of God will testify. As you speak of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Later on in Acts, chapter 24, the Apostle Paul, once Saul of Tarsus, Christian killing man that was converted and now preaching Christ. He now is being judged. And he's brought before Governor Felix. And Felix listens to him. And he discourses on righteousness Self-control and the judgment to come. Righteousness that's necessary for heaven. The righteous Jesus. Your lack of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come that will balance the books. And the Bible says that as Paul was speaking to Felix, that he trembled. He was afraid so much that he trembled. Evidently, the Holy Spirit was doing some cutting on the heart. He saw he wasn't righteous, that he didn't have this self-control. He had sin instead of self-control. And he's headed to judgment and he's not ready. And he's trembling. And we say, wonderful. That's what Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would do. As we testify, he will testify. Do you know what Felix did? He didn't do what the 3,000 did. He said, enough, enough. 
No one here anymore. I'll, I'll, I'll listen uh, more at a convenient season, a more convenient season. And of course, you know, there, there never came a more convenient season. And he perished in his sin. He was convicted by the Holy Spirit, but he was not converted. It's a sad thing. I've, I've heard more than one person say that they're hanging their hat, that they're a Christian, they're ready for the day of judgment because when they sin, they're convicted. Conviction is not conversion. Those who are converted will be convicted and that conviction will drive them into the arms of Jesus where they will be saved. But many people are convicted of sin that only harden themselves against it and will not go to Christ that they might be forgiven. And Felix is one of many that we meet in the scriptures and one of many that we sadly see in our world. I'm convicted of sin. I must be Christian. Felix was convicted so much that he shook. But he wasn't converted. Come to Christ. That's why conviction is there. It's it's meant to drive you into the arms of Jesus. And he never turns one away. Just like he never turned one sick person away. But So if you come to Jesus, he will heal the waywardness of your heart. And he will forgive your sins. The entire army of the Arameans came and surrounded the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. They besieged Samaria. They were cutting off all of its food supplies in the city, and the result was a serious famine. And food was so scarce that a donkey's head sold for two pounds of silver. I don't think there's a lot of meat on a donkey's head. And yet it it, it sold for two pounds of silver. And the city was slowly being starved to death. Women were beginning to eat their children. A gruesome strategy of war. Slow starvation. Boxed them in. Cut off their food supply. Well, just outside the walls, the the, the Aramean army was out further, but just outside the gate were four lepers. And you know why they're outside the gate. They're under quarantine. They're lepers. They can't live with their families in society, so they're right outside the gate. And one day they got thinking, why, why stay here till we die? I mean, if we go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. If we stay here, we will die. Let's go surrender to the Arameans. And if they kill us, we die. But if they spare us, we live. There's our one chance at survival. And so once it got dark, the four lepers started going out sheepishly toward the, the Aramean camp. And, and they got to the edge of the camp, and they, they found no one there. You see, God had put a sound into the ears of the whole entire army, a sound of chariots and horses. And they thought, oh no, the Israelites have hired foreign nations to come, and they're coming against us. And they got up in the night in a panic, and they just fled for their lives, left the camp untouched. All of their stuff was there. So here come the lepers. And they open the first tent, and they start gorging themselves on the food, and they found silver and gold and clothes, and they went out and they hid it. And now they came back to the second tent, and, and they're starting to eat and gather the things. And then they stopped. They stopped dead in their tracks. And they said to each other, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. So they headed back to the city gate of Samaria and shouted to the gatekeeper. The Arameans are gone, and they've left everything behind. They went out, and everyone had food to eat. Now, there's more to the story than that. That's really not what the story is about, what I'm going to, how I'm applying. I'm simply using it as an illustration. There was a lesson here about God's word will be fulfilled when he said food will be had at a low, cheap price. And people said, there's no way. Two pounds for a donkey's head. And you're saying by this time tomorrow that it'll be sold for pittance? Even if God opened up the windows of heaven, it could not happen, one man said. The steward said. And that man was trampled. 
to his death. He didn't believe the word of God. So there's other lessons there, but but what I want to say is that our world's perishing. And they're perishing for a lack of the gospel. They, They don't understand their greatest problem is sin. They don't understand that Jesus has a righteousness to give to all who come and trust him. And they don't understand that without that righteousness, judgment for them will be damnation. And, and we sit here each week and we, we're stuffing ourselves with the gospel. And we go home and we, we're stuffing ourselves with the gospel. And if that's all we do, folks, then we have reason to be jabbed in our hearts and to say, you know, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. Oh, we dare not keep it to ourselves. Love must overflow the banks of ourselves and, and into this world. We have the greatest story to give to the nations and to our nearer neighbors, the greatest love story ever of God so loving the world that he gave his one and only son to die in the place of sinners that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, world of lost sinners, get into Jesus Christ and be saved. Well, let's, let's tell them the great love story. And let's tell them each of its parts of sin and righteousness and judgment. And tell it lovingly that the sinners might be saved just like us. We're, we challenge each other in closing hymn, O Church Arise. This is the mission, and the Spirit of God has been given to help us. Let's cast ourselves upon him. Even as we sing, O Church Arise. Stand with me as we sing. Thank you.